How They Train is brought to you by Pillar Performance. For everyone who uses Pillar Performance and also uses the HTT20 discount code for 20% off, then just a quick little update that I now have a landing page over at the Pillar online shop where you can go to it and the discounts will be automatically put on your products during checkout without you having to enter a discount code. You can find that at pillarperformance.shop slash HTT. So grab your pillar from there from now on. The link for it is in the description. The HTT20 discount code still works if you want to do that, but this just takes the hassle out of it and makes things a bit easier for you with it there automatically updated. It also has some great extra info about the products you might want or some products that you haven't tried yet, but why you might want to try them. So yeah, go check it out. Also, like just an update on the exciting announcement from last week that Pillar Performance is officially coming to America in late March. Keep an eye out on the How They Train and Pillar Performance Instagram accounts for the exact date on that. Americans, you've been missing out on Pillar Performance for too long with Australians and Europeans having had access to it for a long time now. So make sure you get ready to get yourself some triple magnesium and take your sleep and training performance to the next level. Today is a great day for me because I'm joined by two of the show's good friends in Sam Long and Dr. Dan Plews. Both of the boys became good friends of the show during 2022, but also good personal friends. So it's awesome to have them on together as the first place they've linked up publicly to chat about working together as coach and athlete in 2023. Dan, hello. Thanks for being here, mate. But I'm going to start with Sam today because I want to ask a pretty broad question that I think will take us into this conversation really well, which is just... How did you how did you get Dan on board as your coach? How did that all come about, Sam? Yeah, good question. I mean, I'd kind of always had Dan in the back of my mind for a while as as the guy uh, who's the science guy, you know, who who is really into the science and was considering a change to a more scientific approach. Um, and I do want to be clear these days. It seems like you say like scientific approach, and everyone immediately assumes you're talking about the Norwegians and that you're talking about lactate testing and this was like never what I was uh the forefront of what I was thinking about like it was more testing and seeing what the physiological changes are and systematically going after that physiology um and, and to be clear I don't think the Norwegians think that themselves it just seems like that's what the uh broad audience has thought and so I've gotten so much stuff of like oh that's like what you got into is like lactate testing and so on and so forth and that was just never that was never the intention at all. It was it was to find a guy who could figure out what was actually going on with my physiology, especially because there was just such a big disconnect between between what I was doing and training, um, and my performance at the full distance. Um, and and my training was looking like it should have set me up for the full distance, and it was the opposite. I was performing at the half distance, and so I needed a guy who could basically ask you know hypotheses and questions and answer those, and then find find ways to go about it. And did you consider anyone else or was it just Dan that was in the back of your mind? You reached out to him and then from those conversations, it was Dan and only Dan. No, I, I, I had conversations with, with several different coaches. I kind of had a, a list, if you will. Um, you know, I spoke with uh, Dan Lorang and Bjorn as well. Those were kind of my top three guys. And yeah, just from there it emerged. And I think that's, I think that's really what anyone should do. It's better to like really talk to multiple people and then see what fits best because that way you really know as opposed to having guesses in your head. So say if you were to compare like Bjorn and, and Dan Lorang, both like 
some of the world's best coaches compared to Dan in those initial conversations. What made you ultimately go with Dan? Dan Plews, that is. Yeah, so I think I, I think what it was is all three seemed like super knowledgeable, actually similar. I, I heard a lot of similar stuff in, in how they coach now. So it's it's cool to hear, okay, most of the top coaches have come to similar methodologies. And then at that point, it was basically like, who do I have the best connection with? Who's it the easiest to talk to? And like, who actually understands like the my my psychology the most or me the most as a person? And just who did I click the most with? And, and that was really what ultimately, uh, yeah, how I decided. And then Dan, what did you think when when you got reached out to by Sam Long? And did you um, straight away when you when you got reached out to by Sam like get excited about the prospect of working with him? Um, yeah, definitely got excited by it. I think um, it's funny because after Sam did Roth last year, I actually sent him a, a, a DM on um, Instagram because I was you know I'd read a bit about his nutrition and what he was doing, and he completely ignored me. But then, uh, <laughs> but then he, uh, so it's like, oh, now it, now it, now it's getting back to me. I, I thought, I thought he just wasn't, didn't like me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, one of my, one of, as I think I've said before, one of my main things about coaching anyone is that I like the person. I think they're a, they're a, a good sort. F- first and foremost, you know, I get along and I, and I like them. Um, so that was that was the main reason. I mean, me and Sam, we had a maybe two or three interviews um, before we kind of made the decision. And and those interviews were really um, just getting to know each other and making sure we clicked, really, because I didn't know Sam at all. And um, I think all I've seen from him is like the social media, watch some of his YouTube things. And um, but I didn't really know, him, you know, as as Sam Long as, a, as the person. So, um, yeah, that was the main thing. And I have to say, um, Sam Sam Long is in the real person is different to his um, social media persona as you as as you, you kind of you fall into when you just watch those things. So um so yeah that was it was it was good. I agree with that for the record. I love both versions of Sam Long, but in 2022 doing the podcast, no one surprised me more than Sam as to like how different I thought they were going to be versus how they actually are. And I was like, oh fuck, I love Sam Long. Whereas going into it. I didn't, it's not that I didn't love him. I just didn't know whether I'd like him or hate him. I didn't know. And I was like, I love this guy. Um, and everyone who would message, like who would say that same thing, because I think it's like pretty fair to say Sam was controversial in some ways in 2022, but has been his whole career and maybe like polarizes people a little bit. But it, so everyone who would message the show to be like, oh, Sam Long, what about him? I'd be like, man, he's the best. Like you would love him if you actually talk to him. So that's funny to hear you say that as well, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I, I clearly got to do something about that because that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> I will say two things. Well, one, actually, Dan sent me, he sent me a screenshot and we both raced Ironman New Zealand back in 2018. Me as a, a first year pro and him as, you know, an age grouper and uh, he beat me. So <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> just dusted him up big time. <laughs> he was like establishing hierarchy early. Yeah, as I said to Sam on, at the time, he was on the um, the positive end of the age curve, and I was on the negative end of the age curve. So, um, so yeah. Dan, what did you send Sam in that DM uh, after Roth? Oh, well, I just because I, I just listened to one of his YouTube um, YouTube clips, and I just did the rough calculations. He was talking about how many calories he was taking, and I did the calculations of exactly how many grams of carbs per hour that was, and. 
it was just a lot. And I said to him, you'd probably, you, you'll probably do better if you just take a little bit less than that. But that's pretty much all I said, really. But, um, you know, I just thought it was such an obvious one. And yeah, so I, I reached out and gave him a bit of a tip. And and I think I think I gave you some articles to have a read of. Probably. You did, yeah. You sent some articles as well, yeah. Did you read that and take any of it on board at the time, Sam? No, I did. I no, I didn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, because at that time I was really buying into you know taking absolutely as many carbs as you can at all times, racing, training, before bed. Basically, the more carbs, the merrier at all instances, and so. Yeah, anything like that, I was almost like opposed to reading. I think partly I was like, I wanted to convince myself that what I was doing was going to work um, with with the coach I was under and the plan, the training plan I was under, because it was like if I admitted that it wasn't working, I had to change everything. And so then, yeah, shortly after that was when these questions creeped in my mind, and then of course everything had to had to lead to where we are now. So let's dive into nutrition throughout this podcast, but. I think more broadly, Dan, this takes me to a to a really good question, which is through these initial discussions with Sam and then when you started to work with him, what did you see in both his training, his racing, his nutrition, his day-to-day life that you thought he could do better and that you thought he was already doing really well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, don't, let's not get, get this wrong. Like Sam was doing so many things right. And of course, Ryan Bolton's an, an amazing coach and he, he did lots of great things. But I think... I also think that every athlete has an evolution with with a coach and every coach runs their course with an athlete. So it's not as if to say Ryan was doing a bad job. I think at some point or another, co- athletes go to new coaches and it's just it's just the way things evolve. But I mean, one of the one of the first things that I did was I looked at um, some old data from Sam. This is in the early conversations. This is before we even agreed to to work together i said oh well have you got any old lab testing data and he had some old lab testing data from i think it was 2017 it was quite old right sam it was, yeah yeah i think it was the end tail end of 2017 there like october of yeah um it might have been october of 2018 actually i think yeah i think it was october of 2018. so I, I looked at i looked at a bit of that and uh you know and i did some rough maths and i calculated his fat oxidation his carbohydrate oxidation and, and looked at those things in terms of what he would be doing for an Ironman. And Ironman power, and you know, and and I just basically pointed out to him how much carb he requires um, per hour during an Ironman, the intensity that he needs to race at, right? Because you're talking 300 watts, which is a it's a lot of calories and a lot of uh, it's a lot of power that's required, and you also have to consider this within the context of of energy, right? It's not just fat versus carbohydrates. Sam requires a lot of energy in terms of calories because he's producing a lot of power. And I said, you know, look at this. If your if your fat oxidation is this and your carbohydrate oxidation is this, it means that you're going to have to be using about 250. You're burning 250 grams of carbohydrates an hour. So even if you're at 120 grams, you're going to be running short by the end of the marathon for sure. You just can't you can't oxidize that much. You're not and you know he's not oxidizing 120 grams anyways probably closer to 90 grams at best and that's going down during the course of an Ironman so I just pointed out the problem really because I think Sam's main issue at the time which was this disconnect between his 70.3 middle distance performance and his Ironman performance it was just a massive gap um, and it would always come undone you know at the start of the marathon or halfway through the marathon so um, yeah so that's um, that's what I kind of looked at at the start 
Um, went back and looked at some of his training data. Obviously, Sam was training a lot, um, but and, and that worked for him. But it was it was just a different approach to the approach that I take, which is more of a kind of a demand-driven, um, specific, um, targeted approach to training. So two things in that. Can you explain then, based off this um, deep dive into the data you've done and, and looking at what Sam was taking in, what changes did you guys then go about and make? Um, well, I guess so. that was old data, right? So we then had to back it up with some more recent data. So we went and, you know, he went into the, the Wahoo lab in Boulder and we got some more like a battery of tests done. Um, and then it was a case of not, of, of kind of looking at everything really, his entire physiology. So don't just look at what his, what his substrate utilization is. We looked at many different things. So he did tests in both cycling and running. Um, in cycling, we looked at his um, gross efficiency. We looked at where his um, VT1, his threshold lies, where his VT2 threshold lies. Looked at what his maximal fat oxidation was. Looked at where that fat max lies. And then, and then I basically, I, I, we did the same for running as well. We also looked at some anaerobic capacity as, as well. So we looked at that area of the energy system. So that was some sprints on the bike. And then I basically, I pulled it all together. And I identified the gaps in what I believe where Sam needed the work over over a Zoom call. And then from that point on, we I always take this approach where I go um, early days. It's like, OK, close the performance gap. Look at some specific interventions to to build certain areas of the physiology or that I believe is lacking. But then when it gets into to, to racing, then, of course, it then becomes very um, demand driven because there's no if, if say if. For example, Sam's got a low anaerobic capacity and we think, okay, well, we're going to have to boost that up a little bit for, for various reasons. You would never do that just before a race because it's just not important. When you get towards a race, it becomes more and more important that it's very specific towards the event and the, you know, the power specific, the pace is specific. So that's the, um, yeah, so that's what we did. So we built the program. We did some specific interventions around things that were lacking. Um, some of those were, his um, threshold was wasn't as high as as we I thought it it would it would have been. For example, he's obviously he was working at a very high fractional utilization during racing, so did some work to build that up. Um, fat oxidation was low, which we knew about um, even before that because that's what Sam had um, had talked about. And his uh, marine economy wasn't that great, so we kind of did some specifics around that for the it was probably the first twelve weeks, I would say. Was it about 12? Yeah. Maybe less. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, before we then went into more of a specific race block uh, before Miami. Sam, when you're like having these conversations with Dan, doing this testing with Dan, what are you thinking? Are you sort of, are you thinking, wow, this is really different to what I've done in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about Dan, right, because I had done the laboratory testing back in 2018, um, but Dan has a way of like, a lot of people, they, they're they good at looking at just, right, they want to find one thing in that. Say if I tell them, okay, I think my fat burning's bad, they would just look at the data and look for confirmation of, okay, your fat burning's bad. But like, it's the relationship between all these numbers. Um, it's the relationship between all these numbers, which is why Dan has a PhD that he can actually figure out like what other things mean. For example, like finding the the running economy and why the running economy is bad. Like, I think a lot of coaches would have just completely missed that that data and that information. And then as with looking back at my past training, figuring out why it was bad and how to improve it. So like 
yeah, it's not just looking at the one or two things in the training data. It's it's the relationship between all of them. Sam, can you explain that a little bit too, more to me when you say um, Dan picked up this like weakness or this, you know, deficit in running running economy and then a way to work on it? What does that actually mean? What is running economy? And then how do, how are you working on that? Yeah, I mean, with this, I'm sure I'm sure Dan can explain it better than me. But like, it's basically how much how much energy you're using in a way to go at a certain pace, but not just carbs versus versus fat, right? It's just like, are you putting in what's your oxygen consumption to the pace? I think, right, Dan, isn't that correct? Exactly, yeah. So we measure running economy. There's lots of different ways you can measure running economy. Some people measure it in just um, like calories required um, to to produce a certain speed. But the most traditional way is measured in uh, mils per kilogram, mils of oxygen, mils of VO2 per kilogram of body weight per kilometer. So the lower the number, the the better the score. So you want a low number. So typically good runners will be less than 200, like the Kenyans will be less than 180, you know. So um, like I think I talked about running an economy before, you know, in terms of Chelsea's data, she's someone who's ferociously economical, for example, which is why she's such a good, you know, she's got such a good marathon on her in, in an Ironman. And um, so, yeah, and that was, so, so when I looked at, um, so when it was quite interesting because you could look at, at Sam's data and um, he was actually quite good at, at um, burning fat and burning carbohydrates during running, but they were both very high because he required so many calories generally because he wasn't that economical. So you could look at that and you would go, oh, look, he's um, he's quite a good fat burner. But the, but the problem is, is that he was burning a lot of fat and carbohydrates simultaneously because his energy requirement was so high then you have to go okay well he, we need to make him a little bit more efficient and it and it totally surprised me to be honest and i said to sam at the time well when i watched him run i think he he looks very nice when he's running he looks really economical but there was obviously some properties that needed some work so um fortunately fortunately his partner lara's uh snc specialist and you know and i said hey make him um, make sam do some box jumps and let's have a look at his elasticity and see how see how basically how springy he is and, and Lara quickly came back and said I've never seen anyone look so uncoordinated jumping on a box before <laughs> <laughs> so I think we, I think we think we kind of solved the problem right so were the changes that you guys made just like gym work stuff or is there other changes you made well I'd say it's just like the whole weekly running schedule um the duration of runs at times, the frequency of runs, when they're done, how they're done, even uh, the amount of sugar I was taking in, we feel was impacting it. So like it, it wasn't just the gym work, the gym work was maybe the main thing, but I think, well, actually, I think the whole weekly schedule is probably just as important for that as well, because I was just like, I was running a lot and now I'm running, uh, not definitely less, but yeah, but feeling better. I think this takes us into my my next thing I want to talk about and really the main thing I want to talk about on this on this podcast which is Dan mentioned it before talking about how in the past you're a really high volume trainer Sam and you know you came on and, and did the podcast last year and that was one thing that was really evident you you train a lot and you always have really high weekly volume really high yearly volume and Dan said before that he sort of has a more demand-driven training approach. Um, so what have you, like, what have you noticed in terms of differences in, in your weekly training, Sam? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to correct, because Dan probably made me sound a little bit soft there um, by saying that <laughs> I, you know, I don't do much volume anymore. I mean, we're still, we're yeah, still, yeah. He still, he still a does a lot. He still does a lot. Okay. Yeah. He still does a lot of volume, like way more than, um, yeah. He's a, we're talking 30 hours a week still, but I think before he was more than that, right? Yeah. The, the biggest difference is like, so the fluctuations I used to do like, uh, a kind of three week on one week off cycle. And basically throughout this cycle, I would go from, you know, feeling fresh to feeling just so completely fucked that I like almost couldn't get out of bed by the end of the three weeks. And then like a week would be maybe not that much. And we've moved basically completely away from that where we, we haven't really had like an off week all year. It's just been okay. If I taper for a race, then we bring the volume down a little bit. And the rest is more integrated into the cycle using HRV and, and stuff like that. And so, like, I used to rarely ever have an off day. And now, like, well, off day is still a bad term because I still rarely have an off day. But we'll do, like, swim-only days usually once a week um, where I where I kind of can really absorb the load and then continue. And that and that's made, like, a night and day difference in my energy. And, and I tell you, I can notice that just with how I live my life. Yeah, I think, um, I think like, Jack, my... Like the philosophy that I always take is I, I don't buy into like three weeks on, one week off, and your abs- athletes are absolutely buried by the end of the three weeks, and then they take a week to recover. I believe there's two fundamental philosophies that I have. Is One is that every session should be doable, no matter how tired you are. If, you, if, you're, if you're so tired, you can't complete a session. Either the session's too hard or you're way too tired. And the other is that you, training should be more like on a – on, on a low wave rather than a big wave and then a big dip, you know? So, it, you, so you're just kind of permanently, you know, up, up and down, but you're, you're kind of more on the top all the time rather than you have to take a week off when you, when, just because you're so tired. So that's kind of the approach that I, I take in with Sam. And one of the things that I think most coaches really forget about when it comes to training, and I've done quite a lot of with Sam is, like everyone talks about training volume, everyone talks about training intensity, but most coaches don't really think about training density. So training density is what happens when you do day on day on day. So we did a good threshold sequence where we were doing um, three days back to back threshold. Um, so the density of training becomes very, very high. But then Sam has the ability, basically that was done from Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where we were really stacking a lot of high quality but then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it was all low intensity. And Monday was easy as well. So it was kind of like three days on, four days, just like low intensity training. And, and I found that to work really, really well. And you can kind of keep up on this high for much, much longer. And, you know, the fact that Sam just said his mood's better and he's, um, you know, the, and he's happier. These are all these are all signs to me that he's um, really absorbing the training well. And, and, and he was and the HRV really supported that as well, that he was you know taking in the training and it was it was going really well until until he did the shootout and then that that turned <laughs> things that turned things haywire a little bit so so the shootout is this you know, you you explain the shootout sam yeah it's, yeah it's quite a funny um a funny story yeah the shootout's this ride out here on tucson and um you know basically tons of people go and in the winter tucson is like the place that most of the pro cyclists uh in the u.s come to do a training block and so they're all here and of course, I'm, you know, fighting Dan for months saying, hey, I want to go to the shootout. I want to go to the shootout. And he's holding me back. And then I go. And of course, I do like, what did I do on it? 427 watts for 18 minutes. Uh, 
in the middle of a five hour ride with other work. And then like, yeah, I mean, I was just like pummeled and destroyed after, um, of course it was good fun and I still want to go back and do it again. But when we have the data, it's like, there's reasons not to. And, uh, that's, what's crazy. Like, I wish I was tracking some of this stuff before, because I was doing this on like a routinely basis that if we had data on how, just how overall fatigued I was, I think it would be, it would be amazing to look back on, honestly. Basically, the, the shootout took nearly a week to recover from. <laughs> yeah, it was for sure harder than Clash Miami. Like the yeah. training, <laughs> yeah. the, the effort, it, like was harder. <laughs> yeah. So Dan, I'm I'm hearing this like these like general ideas, but what does it specifically look like? So could you give me an example of like just some sessions or like a weekly structure that you um, sort of saw Sam was doing before you? And then how does it specifically compare to what you're doing now? So, I mean, I, I don't really, I mean, what Sam before he was doing, um, you know, very typical, very typical structured training, which was, you know, he'd have, he'd often have the same easy day on a Monday and then, you know, then Tuesdays and Thursdays might be hard. And, um, but it was kind of just your very traditional approach. And I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, and I, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know what, I don't know how demand driven it actually was, but um, I mean, I can't speak to that. I'm, I don't know. I don't really know, but I can just tell you what he's doing now. Um, in that now we, we we decide. So we look. We we test. We get the data. We decide where the gaps are, the weaknesses, the, where's the performance gap. We do specific training interventions over three week blocks ish to close that gap. And how that looks is dependent on dependent on what what we're trying to address, right? But. But for example, when when we were looking at like um, VT2 thresholds, it would be um, Monday would be um, an easy day, Tuesday would be a threshold specific day where, but we were actually aiming to be at threshold. So if it's a if it's a, if the threshold at 360 watts, it would comprise. This is around cycling, by the way, mainly because um, um, we were still doing some high quality runs, but it was like you know 10 by three and a half minutes at. At the at the given at the given power output with then a runoff at closer to the closer to race pace, which is pretty hard. Um, Wednesday would then be another similar session, but we'd be working around the same threshold. So say we've got the thresholds at 360, we'd be doing a little bit above 380 and a little bit below 340 and kind of play around with that to try and shift it up um, with another run on the same day. And then on the third, and then the third day. So by bearing in mind that now it's you're getting pretty tired, it's more just a little bit shorter um, in terms of total work. But we're looking at going to what our target threshold is. So, like me and Sam, we when we first sat down, we kind of said, okay, this is where things are. This is where I think things need to be. So we then did some stuff at what I think his threshold should be or needs to be for him to be the athlete that he wants to be. Um, so that means shorter reps, a bit more recovery, because obviously you can't do 10 by three and a half minutes at his with 90 seconds recovery at his target threshold now. So it's just a little bit, a little bit different. And um, yeah, so that was three days and then the rest of the, and then basically four days easy until we do it again. Yeah, I'd say like what's been really interesting is, right. So in the past, like I went four and a half years pretty much with the same weekly schedule um, or template. And now already, you know, we're, not even three full months through the year and we've already used three different weekly schedules and weekly templates um with dan to to stimulate different things so like 
anytime you ask Dan, oh, well, what's your weekly template? Like he can tell you what one is for a certain block, but then it's uh, it's constantly changing and constantly different, which which is great because it's causing physiological changes, but it's also pretty cool for the mind as an athlete because like I'm just always evolving and doing different things. I'm never stuck in this like mental rut of like, okay, it's a whatever day of the week again, everything's exactly the same. Like, and, and then also like I used to do my, my hard days say would either be like a bike day or a run day. So I often wouldn't even, or maybe I still say a bike day, I would maybe run like four Four, four miles easy off the bike but now it's like we're usually our hard days we're usually doing all three hard yeah and i think i think that the thing is is like we talked about before jack is that you know if you're if you're if you are keeping your weekly schedules the same all the time um as an athlete or as, as a coach you are not thinking about training in the overall context of what's affecting what like you know we have to think about we have to think about training for triathlon as training for triathlon and th that means that the, the swim affects the bike and the bike affects the run and what you did the day before affects what you're doing on that day and you and that's why it always changes because i'm trying to manipulate um some specific physiological changes it's like doing your long run the day after a long bar ride it helps because you wake up the next morning you can actually feel the ride in your legs still and then it's like you you know you're having to run through with tired legs a, a little bit and it, it kind of I, I there is a bit of an adaptation going on with that kind of thing and a couple of things off that so i can't do a conversation that has sam long in it without talking about swimming um what what's been <laughs> happening with you guys and sam swimming uh, maybe we'll start with you, Sam. Has the swim training that you're, you've been doing changed versus your previous coach? Because obviously a lot of people um, look at you and they say, if only Sam could swim front pack, he'd win more races. Yeah, so so we've changed we've changed some things. I think partly what we've changed is allowing me to absorb the swimming volume and the swimming load more. Of course, you know, Dan's in, there's more we'd like to do, but Dan's over in New Zealand and I'm here and so it's still working with the swim squads I have and the swim coaches I have. Um, while we do want to sort of get some more hands-on coaching. And so we're trying to find a time to do that, but uh, we have still modified the structure of what I'm doing within the sets. And then, yeah, like I said, I mean, I think it was really hard to absorb uh, the swimming volume and adapt to it when I was running as hard and as long as I was. Um, so it's a big shame because Miami, the swim didn't really showcase the improvements um, that we've seen, but uh, that's okay because there's other races coming up. Yeah, I think I think it's still early days, and I think you know when Sam first asked me to coach him, one of my I mean, I talked about all the things that we said we'd work on. You know, that went to the lab, but you know, first and foremost and forefront of my mind is still improving Sam's swimming, and I think um, you know I really believe in um, surround yourself with experts, and I, I cannot be an, an absolute expert in absolutely everything. You know, and there are people who are way better than me at swimming technique, and and people who are better than me at running technique, and people who are better than me with nutrition. So uh, you know, I think in the future we're looking to um, you know do a concerted effort to really work on some 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 of that you know we've already done some video technique analysis the best we can but um uh yeah we it sounds swimming a lot still but um yeah i think it's still early days and we kind of we almost jumped in a little bit late when the season was underway where we almost need like a two-week period where we can just do a concerted effort to really 
you know, change, uh, change and switch Sam's swimming up a little bit. So Sam, when you say like you guys want to like link up and, and do some in-person stuff, um, where would that be? And, and when might that be? Yeah. I mean, good question. It'd probably be, I mean, ideally it'd be sometime sort of in the, our, my winter, your guys' summer over there in, in, you know, Auckland or even in Australia. And cause you guys have such good open water, 50 meter pools. Um, of course it's a great place to visit and travel to. So that's just the question of figuring out when and how to do it. Um, and, and also now with a uh, baby coming in August, it's kind of like, okay, just, there's just a lot of logistics, right. And then the race schedule, how to travel over there. Um, so we don't quite have a time or, or place exactly set, but we feel somewhat good that it's just going to happen. Yeah. We, we were actually having this conversation yesterday about, you know, after Miami, you know, we had the conversation again that we really need to find the time to, to fix it. But, you know, it's, it is not easy in, um, in hectic schedule. Cause even if I was in Tucson and we were together, we still couldn't really do the sort of designated swimming focus that is required to to really make the jump because he still has to he still has to bike he still has to run he still has to do all those important things so it's about finding the right time in the program to to really make it to make it worthwhile and also get you know the right expertise around and yeah it's a it's um a big thing but it's it's not um something that we're we're going to um not something that we've forgotten about, that's for sure. So specifically with this, um, I know that me and you have talked in the past, Dan, about how um, Chelsea Sodaro, another athlete you coach, Ironman World Champion last year, did some work with Paul Newsom um, on her swimming. But, I mean, Australia also has lots of great people like John Rogers is famous in the triathlon world and, you know, he's the guy who transformed Braden Curry, a fellow New Zealand um, swim to, from being pretty average to, you know, up there with the best in the world. Who is it specifically that you might bring in with Sam uh, to work with? Yeah, well, I mean, we've already done some video analysis with Paul Newsom, and, and I believe that Paul's the best in the business when it comes to when it comes to specifically um, triathlon swimming um, and transforming triathletes into good swimmers because he just understands the techniques required for the open water. So, I mean, yeah, we, we're already, we, we've already done some video analysis with him, but we just haven't had the time to get um true eyes on on sam yet is there a chance that we could see dan plues and sam long both make their way over to australia uh no there's definitely a chance definitely a chance <laughs> yeah definitely a chance we could make some uh some great swimming youtube videos up on the up on the sunshine coast Sam. <laughs> oh yeah i mean yeah that would be great and yeah. um something else like i think people are fascinated by yourself and your nutritional beliefs Dan, like I think when people listen to a lot of podcasts you do, it's one of the main f like focuses. It's something that people always want to hear about. When I do an episode with you uh, and I don't talk about diet too much with you, I often will get messages saying like talk about diet more. Um, but we started this podcast talking about, about nutrition. So can you sort of explain to me in more depth and, and more detail what Sam was doing and, and some changes you've made there? Oh God, Zach, I gotta, I gotta interject here because it's been a little crazy. I mean, you say you do one low carb thing and the whole world like blows up. It's uh, so what we, what I have said and what we sometimes say, people hear completely different things and, and then think we're doing something completely different. So maybe we can try and set the record a little straighter. <laughs> yeah, really. uh, yeah, I know. The, the funny thing is, Jack, you say, 
you say you say the words damn flues and low carb low carb in the same sentence and people automatically think that it's like some sort of ketogenic diet that's where sam's not eating any carbohydrates ever and you know um and i think it's quite i think it's quite funny like everyone's it, it really is like two and two and two make six you know with that kind of thing but um the, the fact of the matter is is that um when it comes to long distance triathlon specific, specifically the you know ironman fat oxidation and substrate utilization is a key determinant determinant of success you know um so when i see an athlete who has clearly very poor fat metabolism using the demand-driven approach that I take the training, I will therefore have a specific intervention to make to make it work, right? Um, and that doesn't mean that they go on to a low-carb ketogenic diet. It just means that it's more manipulation around, around training to um, restrict carbs at certain times and add them back in at certain times to promote to promote fat oxidation you know so like they put this paper in in sports med that you know shows all the things that influence fat oxidation so i'm just utilizing some of those factors to to push um fat oxidation to a more desirable level and it's not just diet it's um, numerous things intensity counts duration counts habitual diet definitely definitely of, of course counts um glycogen in the muscles counts so it's all these things together that would um that make that make the difference and it's and it's not um calorie you know calorie restriction it's just changing the macronutrient content of the diet at certain times and i think it's hilarious how people how many athletes and many many um followers they'll think okay they hear the word um you know you're, you're de depleting or you're restricting carbohydrates for one session for example but it's totally fine to cram yourself with 120 grams of sugar for five hours down, you know, just for the way, even when you're doing a low intensity session, apparently that's, that's totally normal and people love it, but um, it's uh, yeah, it's not, it's not that great for you. I can assure you of that much. And it's not, it's certainly not required at a low intensity. Sam, I, I obviously like, I don't really consume that much triathlon content because there's just not a lot out there, but Every time there is triathlon content, I love it. And so, you know, yourself and Lionel and when the Norwegians were doing it all have like great YouTube channels. And I was thinking, because I was reading some comments on your Instagram the other day and they're just hilarious, mate. Like people just think you're, they basically think you're the liver king now. Um, for, for people who don't know who the liver king is, he just only eats meat and he follows like these ancestral tenets. He's like, it's funny. Um, and I thought like you should make a video on your YouTube channel, like, like changes I've made with my new coach and just pretend to be the liver king for a day and like just if you're gonna because if you're gonna get trolled like that just lean into it yeah yeah so i did have this idea of a of a youtube video where like i would oh i'm going out on my low carb long ride and then uh it would be me and i'd like sneak my uh my wahoo into my my girlfriend's car as she drives to see her clients and then i'd like you know stroll over to mcdonald's and eat like five big macs and talk about how i'm on a low carb diet <laughs> and uh the funny thing is most people like they would they would probably think mcdonald's maybe even is low carb right because they'd go oh it's meat like and they wouldn't realize that you know all the all the bread has carb I, or something you know but yeah exactly it's just been like it's been absolute madness and then right at, at clash miami like i ran 320 per kilometer this year which is which is as good as i can run right now um and much better than i ran last year and then 
I can't tell you how many messages I've received that, oh, you didn't run faster because you haven't been eating carbohydrates. And uh, the reality is that my threshold has gotten faster, not slower, um, and that we've been taking carbohydrates in. So it's just like, it's been really hard to actually educate people on what we're doing, um, which is a shame because I think a lot of a lot of people could actually improve from it as well. Um, if, if they, because there's nuance to it. It's not just, oh, I only eat carbs or I don't ever eat carbs. Like there's there's a huge middle area to that. I always think with that, perception is reality and like people i think often athletes and and everyone they take a very reductionist approach to what what they see right but um it's uh you know i would say that 90 percent of the time sam is on a very high carbohydrate diet but just around some sessions we manipulate carbohydrates a little bit just to just to boost his fat metabolism and you know i took the exact same approach with chelsea um, seemed to work pretty well with her. I've taken I took I've taken the exact same approach with a number of pros, and it's it's actually always worked. Um, you know, high intensity is maintained, things don't fall away, but fat metabolism is boosted, and that's the ideal ideal preference. And you know, for pros, I find this really is the best approach because they train so much. But you know, it's, it's like like Sam says, there's different nuances for different athletes, and an age grouper might need a bit more of an aggressive approach just because they don't train as much. You know, we know that one of the main drivers of changing your substrate metabolism is training, and um, and but if you're if you're taking always like at 60 grams of carbs or more an hour for every single training session, you are never giving yourself the ability to. Uh, to upregulate your fat metabolism and therefore you will always be in trouble when it comes to racing um and i i personally believe that it's for age group especially is not the best way and the healthiest way to to live like there was a great paper that was published that showed that even in it was elite endurance athletes who were on a normal diet they still 30 percent of them were still had some kind of metabolic disorder and was still like you know borderline type two diabetic and uh, and I think it's because we we promote this high sugar requirement of refined sugars glucose all the time taking your gels on the ride and it, 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 there's a very there's a massive difference between athletes who are fit and healthy and I think especially when it comes to age groupers they do it because they want to be healthy they do the sport because they want to be healthy. And then we give these poor guidelines that basically because they're following what the pros do, um, the leads to undesirable health outcomes. So how might this practically look? What When you say you like restrict carbohydrate intake around certain sessions, what does that mean? What sessions are you doing that around and how do you do it? Do you want to answer, Sam? Do you want to go? Well, I'll let you explain the science, but I was just going to say I did a whole YouTube video like on what we were doing um about just that specific session it's basically oh you do this like it's not every day you do this when you want to boost this and then uh yeah the perception was that then that was all i ever did but um <laughs> all that and a little bit more <laughs> yeah yeah and, and people couldn't get past the fact that he put a that sam put a ranch dressing on his um on his salad as well which is <laughs> which i have to say isn't the best which, by, by the way isn't the best because that is bad that is bad oil but hey I will tell you though, I only had it because my girlfriend, right? You know, the pregnant cravings. We went to the store and she's like, I'm craving ranch dressing. And then she bought this massive thing. And uh, 
and so now it's like sitting in the fridge and before it was always you know going for the nice italian olive oil but now uh that ranch dress dressing tempts me <laughs> ranch dressing is just such an american thing like as an australian like i don't ranch dressing i never see it no one ever eats it or talks about it but then like every american tv show they always talk about ranch dressing it's like such an american thing smother on the ranch eh? <laughs> um, so anyway do you want me to to answer that that question jack so it's it's around it's always around low intensity training so when sam does like a three four hour ride level one level two so way below first ventilatory threshold super low intensity and bear in mind you should be if you if you've got good what is good metabolic flexibility you should be burning mostly fats at that intensity so we the most desirable outcome is we want to be burning mostly fats at a low intensity and then as we shift we can easily shift to higher carbohydrates when we go to the higher intensity that's so we're getting the best of both worlds but like many people they just start exercising and they burn mostly carbs immediately which is which is not correct it's not how our physiology should work by the way um but many athletes do work that way so a low intensity ride below vt1 super easy the night before, so Sam will do a session that day. The night before, he'll just have proteins and proteins and fats for his dinner. Wake up the next morning, he'll have proteins and fats again. Um, so it's not like he's not having calories. So we're not running any any danger or relative energy deficiency. And just remember that there's a lot more calories in fat than there is in um, protein and carbohydrates. So he's definitely getting enough calories in. And then he'll basically he'll ride on. Um, He'll ride on just just electrolytes and um, and and a, a non carbohydrate based fuel source until I think we started at about two hours and you struggled with that right and then we got an hour up to three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, at first that's the thing, and, and I responded quite quick to this. So the first time we did it, like two hours in, and I was like absolutely really struggling um that i then i stopped at the gas station as soon as i hit two hours and got this like jumbo donut um <laughs> also, also not the desired not 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 that was not um the uh advice of his coach at the time <laughs> yeah that, that, then i had to get homer simpson memes from from dan for like a week um but uh but then like within within maybe a month, I was going up to, yeah, like two hours. And then I would only take on like 20 grams of carbohydrates from hour two, three and four um, and ending and feeling like somewhat good. You know, I'd come back, I'd have a small meal, then I'd go swim as well. So like I literally went from in a month going from, you know, being two hours in needing like the sugary biggest donut you could ever have to like four and a half hours in I've had. 60 grams of carbs and like still you know picking along at 220 watts kind of thing feeling good and so do you do this with every sort of longer or medium long easy session you do uh no no i i haven't done this uh process now in like three weeks or so and is there ever like periods where you will start doing that more often and that becomes more normal or will it always be we just do this every now and then to get some like a desired um adaptation yeah, it, it it depends on how much we need how much we need to push the needle. So, you know, we've we've been through a few interventions now. We've done certain things. We're going to go through and do some. We're going to go back to the Wahoo Lab in Boulder and do some more testing. And then, you know, we'll see we'll see what's moved in certain directions. Um, we don't really know at this point, but 
you know, we, we wouldn't do more than two a week anyway. Um, it's never going to be all the time. So, so, and it's just this is this is what I like to call um, S Fuels, a company that I'm I'm a technical director for. You know, this is our this is my massive belief is that it's this right fuel, right time approach is that you do not need if you're just having carbohydrates as your only source of nutrition during all exercise it really makes no sense because that's not how we utilize and and utilize fuel and so and partition it we don't and we shouldn't just burn carbohydrates all the time we burn fats and carbohydrates and at lower intensities we burn more fats and at higher intensities we burn more carbohydrates so you should think about that that pure key fundamental principle of, of physiology when you're deciding what you should take during your training and how you should manipulate that so a bit of a like i think it's a touchy subject but i think it's important here how how much are you guys thinking about body composition body weight and and those kind of things when it relates to this gosh i don't think i don't think at all i don't think we've had a, a single conversation about my weight yeah i mean i just think that if the fuels if the i mean if the i think we've had this conversation before jack but I don't as long as as long as he's not smashing too much ranch dressing ranch dressing dressing will be um we should be sweet you know and I think you know Sam's Sam's fine like his his body weight's normal and so then if it's normal and he and it's stable then we don't really discuss it you know like my my body weight I mean of course when we started in the off season you know I, I was a bit heavier but then the weight quickly comes off and my weight's the same it's been for years so it's it's not like it's affected my weight really one way or the other. I mean, maybe on a given day, I'm a pound lighter or a pound heavier, but uh, it's not doing it to like lose weight. It's doing it, yeah, just to boost that fat metabolism. In my triathlon training, there's really only a few training tools that I use outside of my bike, my runners, and my clothes. My runners probably are and always have been my favorite bit of training equipment. And for example, I use a kicker and I love Zwift. It's something that's transformed the way I train on my bike. But if you ask me outside of my runners, what is the one thing I use in training I couldn't live without at the moment? I would honestly say it's my form goggles. When I bought them and they arrived on my doorstep, I went straight to the pool to try them. And each swim from there, I've just loved them more and more and more to the point where I now just would never go to the pool without them. Seeing real-time data in your goggle lens when you're swimming is seriously the best. It makes swimming really fun. It makes me way more motivated to swim, to swim hard and to swim easy, just to swim. It helps keep, keep me on track in sessions. And just for my own curiosity, last week, I, I went back to my old goggles and I couldn't believe how boring I found swimming again. I ended up putting my form goggles back on after two kilometers because I just felt like time was standing still. And I sort of had a flashback and remembered why I used to find swimming so boring and like dread starting and dread even driving to the pool a lot of the time, to be honest. So trust me, Grab yourself a pair of form goggles and see for yourself what I'm talking about. Use the discount code HTT15 at checkout when you buy them for 15% off and it'll also get you one year's free premium membership. It supports, it supports the show, it gets you a big discount and gets you a product that I myself bought for full price well before I was sponsored by them. They're the best and you'll love them. Trust me. And Sam, you said right at the start of the podcast about wanting a more scientific approach to your training. But when you say that, you don't mean that we're going full Norwegian, we're only talking and, and focusing on lactate. 
do you guys implement lactate testing in your training and if so how not anymore. Well, <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. We have a severe user error when it comes to Sam taking lactate, so we've uh, we've we've kind of given up on it a little bit now. When I when I when we actually get to see each other in person, we'll definitely do it. But it, it is really hard to get clean. The, the getting a clean sample of lactate is really important. It's really hard to do it on your own. And we've tried a little bit, but um, but the data just just comes back a little bit up and down. So. Um, I mean, it was it, the reason we use it, is, especially at the start, is just when we were when we were doing those th like threshold specific blocks, we were using it a little bit to try and titrate and make sure we were in the right kind of area, the right type type of training intensity. Um, but yeah, we 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 haven't we've kind of yeah we just got a lot of bad data, so we kind of it's hard to do on your own basically. It's hard to do it yourself. Yeah, you need someone there doing it. I I started to get kind of like. I don't know what the word is, maybe pissed off at the, at the lactate meter there because <laughs> I'd be doing it. And then sometimes it's like, Oh, you're at six millimoles and I'm at 360 Watts. And I'm like, well, you know, that either means I need to go a whole lot easier and my threshold's only like 200 Watts and, and I just suck or, you know. Yeah. It, it wasn't just that though. It was, it was the, I mean, it was the variability in the data. Like, you know, it would go, it would go from like, four to two to six and you know the intensity is the same so anyway but i just think it's yeah. it's just really hard i mean you need someone there doing it for you to have a real to i mean i do it on myself but obviously i've, I've done a lot of lactates but um it's quite hard to teach people to do it correctly um, and do it really well so so is this just purely because there's too much sweat that that's on the blood that's going onto the lactate sensor yeah it can be a number of things it can be it can be cont contamination. It can be that you don't quite get enough blood. Um, yeah, it can be. It just has to be a very clean sample. And and I'm not I'm not convinced of the. We couldn't get the lactate meter that I wanted Sam to get. So, um, but I mean, we'll 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 use it. I mean, obviously Sam's going to go back to the lab soon, and we'll you know we'll be taking lactates again during that. Um, I mean, we'll use it again in the future, but. Um, yeah, we have it. We kind of parked it a little bit for the time being. Part of it seems like maybe my finger just doesn't really read uh, very reliable. That my finger reading seems to yeah, be. Yeah, I do. Generally, ears are a little bit better than the finger, just because there's it's just a bit of a cleaner. You can get a cleaner sample there generally. Yeah, exactly. But ears just so much. It's so much harder to do on your own. And then yeah, you can't. I do most everything outside. So then it's like, okay, how are you doing a? lactate sample you know on your own on your ear outside in training it's just uh yeah just i guess didn't quite work um yeah how we get to yeah but don't worry we will we will get into it for sure we'll, i mean I, I i mean i've been i mean i've been doing lactates for i mean i was doing with the, when i was with the new, uh, new zealand olympic rowing team you know i was doing lactates then so it's it's not a new it's like it's always seen to be this new thing with the, the Norwegians have invented, but it's um, I'm not saying the Norwegians are doing an amazing job, but they haven't invented lactate meters and taking lactates during training. I was I was doing it in 2010 with when I was at the rowing team all the time. So, yeah. So I, I think this is a good place to, to start talking about some other um, things that potentially um, help the training, which is which has been made really popular by the Norwegians. Obviously the lactate monitors and lactate testing is a big one, but they also um, get the, like they've got 
this big secret around their heat training and their heat protocol that it's the one thing that they'll do interviews like Olav will do an interview or Christian or Gustav will do an interview and it's the one thing that they'll always say like we don't want to talk about that when it comes to what specifically they're doing with their with their heat um, adaptation work and then also like there's some stuff about testing their core body temperature with some um you know, some devices that most age groupers wouldn't want to use. Is there some things that you guys are doing outside of just the training and the nutrition? Um, um shall I answer that, Sam? Who's I go? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're probably doing a, a lot of other stuff. Yeah, than that. Yeah, I mean, my would be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I mean, I, I just, I think that um, it's you don't have to overcomplicate training. And I always believe in like some specific principles. One is like the said principle, which is specific specific adaptation to imposed demands, right? So if you do a certain type of training um, that's very specific, so you train, you know, you do threshold-based training, you do you do training where you're lowering your carbohydrates, so you have to burn fat, you do VO2 max-based training, all of those things, it is specific adaptations to imposed demands. So if you do that type of training, you will adapt to that very specific thing, thing, which is why, you know, we look at the performance gap, we then, we very specific around what we're doing. And then when it comes to racing, we look at the demand-driven approach of racing. Okay, what does Sam have to do in a race? And the, the training then changes towards what he has to do for that particular race. So that's like the one side, which is the, the stimulus, right? The stimulus has to be correct. Then the other side is the response. And if you have that balance between the stimulus and the response, so, you know, the stimulus is right on one side and you can be sure the athlete's responding on the other, then generally you will always see an improvement in the athlete if those things are balanced. The only time that they're off is when either the stimulus is wrong or they're not adapting, the, res the response is wrong. So, but I, I, I always think that, you know, Often people say, "Oh, you have to look at the individual, the individual responses to the to the training." Certain certain athletes need different things. Yes, they do, but they need different things based on their weaknesses. Everyone adapts the same way to a to everyone adapts to threshold training. Their threshold gets better. Everyone adapts to VO two max training. Their VO two max gets better. So um, as long as um, it's usually something that's going on, on the other side where the stimulus where which isn't allowing them to adapt to the stimulus. So it might be poor sleep. It might be their crappy diet. It might be they're fighting with their spouse too much, which always will actually come out on the response side. And the best thing about HRV is, which is the other side. So we have the training on one side. We have all the inputs. We have all the data, power, pace, heart rate. And then on the other side, the response. I'm very dependent on the HRV and I think that's um, that that's what I mainly depend on. And apart from that, there's not much, there's not that much more to it. I mean, there's a lot of nuances within that, of course, but if you have those two things, right. Um, everything, everything will kind of work out. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just jump in real quick. And actually it's Jack. I remember you had Alistair Brownlee on your, on your show and you kind of asked him about technology. And when he was training for for the 2008 Olympics, he said like, he didn't even run with a GPS watch. And he said like, my rule was I only would measure something if it would change what I would do tomorrow. And like me as an athlete, I'm someone who I don't actually really enjoy measuring all the data and capturing it and so on and so forth. I've realized sometimes that it's very important. So I do that, but like, I think if you do the the simple things right, that that's the most important thing. And so like, 
what Dan does a great job of is like making sure my power and pace zones are like super narrow in that it's very, very clear. Oh, at this wattage and this pace, we're accomplishing the stimulus we want. And then he's also comparing that to heart rate and the heart rate curve. And so like, if that's, if that's ever decoupling, we know there's, there's something going on. And so that's pretty simple. And then, yeah, exactly. Then with the HRV, like that's been a total game changer for me because I used, I've always bought in like harder is better, but then when I can see like, oh, this is digging me into a grave, then uh, it allows me to change my behavior. How do you measure your HRV, Sam? And, and what practical applications does that have for you? So we use, uh, we've been using Aura Ring. Uh, it's pretty easy. I mean, they've got an app and then, and then we up, I upload it into this HRV for training app that, uh, that Dan uses so that that way he's able to see all that. And is there like, I don't know like whether this is even a factor, Dan, or whether it's just a brand you work with, but is there a better way to measure HRV? Like there's lots of brands out there, lots of, lots of like tools for measuring it, but is there one that's just like, it's universally known amongst professionals that it's better? Uh, not really. Um, I mean, all of them in terms of, I mean, in, in terms of the actual measurement, in terms of the error, they're all they're all really good. Like Whoop does a great job at measuring HRV. Oring does a great job at measuring HRV. Um, even HRV for training itself, you can actually measure it using PPG technology via the camera on the back of your phone to measure it with your finger. And I published a paper in International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance that validated it against an ECG. So that's also highly accurate. So the measurement of them is really, really good. But as I always say to coaches, like, because I'm often asked which is the best one and they're all good, but it's not, it's not the measurement, it's the interpretation. The interpretation is, is where it's at. That's what makes the difference. And for me, HRV for training, I have the, so Marco Altini, who developed HRV for training, a lot of what he has in his um, coaching app um, which is an online, like it's a web-based platform and um, is based on my PhD. So I'm comfortable with using that and I feel I can interpret it really well. Um, so that's always my go-to in terms of the interpretation at least. And Sam, and I guess Dan as well, what conversations have you guys had around your goals this year and what you want to achieve, like outcome goals when it comes to races and not just this year, but in the future and in your time working together as coach and athlete? Yeah, I mean, I feel this year we've just been so far really, really focused on on process goals. And then at least I feel that then the outcome goals are going to take care of themselves. And do you feel like, say, your first race at, at Clash Miami, did you feel like you noticed any improvement? Did you feel like things were working? Yeah, I think I think there was, and the result doesn't show that, right? Because you look on paper and you go, oh, last year I was first and this year I was fourth. And so you almost say like, oh, well, what happened? But uh, I think there's been so much improvement all across the board. And I think probably one of the biggest things to look at is like last year, I started training for Clash Miami in like November. And then I got November 1st, I started training and then I got carried away and I like totally burned all my matches for the year and like to go win you know clash miami like you know it's a great race but it's not the race to win you know and um this year we went in and actually the numbers and everything are better but like i would say we burnt zero matches for the year and it's only acted as a launching board and so that's that's really i think the most important difference there 
And Dan, working with an athlete like as high level as Sam, and we all know that you work with Javier Gomez and Jan van Berkel, the man, and um, and you now have the, the current world champion, Ironman world champion in Chelsea Sodaro. So you know high performance. Where do you think and, and what do you think Sam can achieve in triathlon? I mean, Sam's, Sam's numbers are in terms of what he can do in, in the lab are, you know, they're, they're up there with the best. I mean, I think the main thing that, we really need to figure out is is just get his swimming a little bit quicker, you know. And I think that if um I think we're always going to be on the back foot because he has to expend so much energy presently to um to close the gap. And I do believe that long term, um, the full Ironman's gonna be Sam's bread and butter is that I think that's what he will be better at ultimately. Um but yeah, I think um, I think the world's our oyster, really, and we'll just keep on um, we'll just keep focusing on the process and following the right approach and just get better and better. Yeah, it's better to show than tell, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's one thing. The one thing, um, one difference between um, me coaching Sam and other athletes is the amount of um, like people are, seem to be a lot more interested in what Sam's doing and the way he's training than anyone else, you know? <laughs> so you get a lot of comments and a lot of, it's quite, um, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Is that fun as a coach taking on, like you have the world, the current world champion. So Sam, I don't like, I don't mean this disrespectfully. You know how highly I think of you as both a person and an athlete, but technically you have these two other athletes in Javier Gomez, a five-time world champion, and Chelsea Sodaro, an Ironman world champion, who on paper are better athletes, have achieved more. But you, like, you taking on those athletes, coaching those athletes, has had nowhere near the amount of like public reception as what taking on Sam Long has, who you know himself, second at the Ironman 70.3 world championships, won so many mis- middle distance races. But it is because of his personality and and his, like we talked about, his divisive personality and his big personality. So what has that been like? Yeah, I mean, I think um, like it's been interesting. I just, I, ha- I think you have to, not read stuff i think is um the most important thing i, I know sam's better is i mean he's obviously he's obviously highly trained at that by now um but i think i think you just have to get on with your business right and um and just just do it really and i think um you could spend a lot of time on the internet reading comments and reading opinions but um i think i've learned that that does not lead to anything so don't do it <laughs> And what about this year for you, Sam? Do you are you going to like bunker down, work with Dan, focus on your training and racing, and and stay quiet? Or because I think in twenty twenty two, like we talked about on the episode we did together last year, I think the two like most talked about moments in triathlon might have involved you for controversies at the seventy point three World Championship and then at the Collins Cup. Like it was probably those, and then like maybe Gustav's win and some stuff that Christian did and maybe like Chelsea's win, but like your two moments weren't from racing. They were from like controversy and, um, and, and sort of like things that happened leading into the race. Are you going to, are you going to lean more into that? Are you going to be like, um, a, a controversial person and, and, you know, market, market yourself and market races and your races, or are you just going to bunker down? Oh, I, I mean, I hope to just bunker down and, and get some good results. And to be honest, even last year, I really hoped to have no controversies. And yeah, it was crazy, actually, that those two big, massive things happened. And so in general, I'm just really trying to, I mean, yeah, I always will tell my story um, and 
because I think the sport of triathlon needs that. But my story, I hope, is my pursuit of becoming the best in, in winning races and um, and how I achieved that rather than, you know, this outlandish event happened and, and so on and so forth. And um, yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I just really hope to avoid situations like that this year. I think something that age groupers can relate to is the athlete coach relationship because almost every age grouper, whether it's in triathlon or running or cycling or swimming, seems to have a coach or want a coach or has has at some point in their age group triathlon career or age group endurance sport career worked with a coach. So we can all relate to that. What I what I don't think they can relate to is or what I don't think people know is what's the difference in an coach athlete relationship as a professional triathlete and one of the best professional triathletes in the world versus your everyday age grouper? Yeah, I guess I can jump in what I think and then Dan Klein knows more, but I would just say like I've learned as I've, you know, moved up through the ranks that voicing like my opinion and what I feel in my body and what has worked for me is, is something that's super important. While like years ago it was like, okay, I don't necessarily know what I'm feeling or what's working, but I've, I've learned like that what my body tells me is usually pretty accurate. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that. I think if I think about, I mean, I do coach a, a few, a few age groupers and, and I think, you know, the, one of the main differences between like the pros and the age groupers is like, it, it's a, it's a, I mean, obviously with, with age groupers, there's more to think about than just training, right? You have to really, you have to really think about, how it fits in with the dynamic of what they're doing in the jobs and whatnot. But I think like I have a lot more um, day-to-day conversations and contact with the pros for sure. Of course, like, you know, I mean, t- I mean, me and Sam are in touch pretty much every, we are in touch every day. Um, but also like if a pro, I think if a pro tells me something like they're feeling tired or they can't do this, or it's not what they feel like, I really, I pay a little bit more attention to it. And that's not to say age groupers don't know what they're talking about, but they haven't had the they haven't had the experience and also really know what true training is, what what the true training volume and is that you, is required to be good and do what you need to do. Whereas a pro kind of you know, the last thing they want to do is less training. So if they're telling me that they want to do less training, it's usually for a good reason. Whereas age groupers they often not all, but many don't really, um, you know, you have to push them a little bit more, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to, I don't feel I can do this swim. It'd be like, mm, I think you probably should do that swim. But I think, you know, pros, they just wouldn't do that unless it was really quite severe. So I, I guess I, I, yeah, I think that's one of the big differences. And Sam, how do you use Dan as a coach? Do you use him purely as this person who you talk about physiology with? He, he prescribes the training, you give feedback on the training. Or, and then you have other support networks for, for the emotional side of things? Or do you lean on Dan both as like a, a physiological coach and as someone who you can talk about how you're feeling with and, and your emotions around your training and your life? Yeah, definitely both. I mean, I think coaching really only starts when you do both of those things. And uh, the joke is kind of that Dan is Dan is like the the daddy or the mommy coach, right? Because he's he's coached so many people with babies. <laughs> And he's got babies himself. Oh, and like, yeah. that was actually part of my my decision uh, of, of going with him. And again, just even talking with him early on, it was just like, I can tell, like, okay, this is this is someone who has the capacity to really care about people and like, and, and have their back. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, we haven't had any any bad stuff happen this year, so there hasn't really been any need to talk about like negative stuff or overcoming things. But um, yeah, I for sure feel like Dan's in my corner at all times. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's also still really early days, right? We we we're still we're still learning to get to know each other. We've never actually met in person properly. Um, so I think these are all things that will just further develop the the relationship. And you know, I think as a coach, if someone said to me, "What's the most important thing about?" isn't you know what you look for in an athlete it's it's trust right I, I I really like I think that an athlete has to trust you as a coach in the programs that you're giving and that, that you know that you know that they know that what you provide is the best and they don't and it's almost not without question but it's you know that it's really it's really important because as soon as the as for me as soon as an athlete starts missing a session without especially if they start missing sessions without talking to me about it or they just change a session without talking to me about it I think that's when the problems start to arise and um you know we're in the early we're in the early days and you know I know I know Sam trusts what I do and that's that's really really important to me but he's dead right about the baby thing I've had I think just about every single pro who I've now coached has had a baby in the time I've coached them apart from Sam well but that seemed to happen and change so yeah I don't know if this is lifting the lid too much or even something that that you're willing to talk about but how does payment work with professionals versus age groupers I'm, I, I'm happy to talk about that it's, I mean it's I mean with um with professionals it's the way I work is uh I have a very small retainer but then um I take I, I take a chunk of the prize money that's how it works whereas with age groupers it's just a a straight monthly fee right because obviously on they're not winning any prize money so um so it's, it's, and I, th- I like that because you know it's um success is success or rumoration is dependent on us both doing well right i have to give the right training i have to make sure that they win races and if they win races i do well and if they win races they do well so i think it's the, be- the best way forward and ev- it's, everyone has a lot of skin in the game whereas you know, I felt like if um, you know, Sam's and any professional's livelihood is based on them winning races and doing well. So I don't think it's fair for it not to be the same for me. You know, I, I need I, I want to have the same consequences. So if they don't if they don't win, they don't get paid. And that means I don't get paid either. So, yeah. And just to finish up, I think this is a bit, a bit of a funner question to finish up on. Maybe we start with you, Sam, and, and then you give your your answer, Dan. What's something that you've learned about each other that you didn't expect or you didn't know before you started working with each other? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you sound like you have a good one, Dan. I don't really have a good one. But I will tell you the story is that, you know, as I said at the start of this interview, um, you know, my my perception of Sam was only from social media. And obviously I've only seen controversy, you know, all the, the stuff at the Collins Cup and, and, all, the, and all the yo, yo, yo. And which is, you know, and, and when when I first got the when Sam first Instagrammed me and said, would I be interested? I said to my wife, I was like, mm, not so sure about Sam Wong. Um, but then but then Kate, she said to me, is, you know, all wives, they always have they're always way more sensible than you are. She says, you don't even know him. You just should have a chat with him. And and I think the biggest difference is that the Sam Wong who is who I think believe my perception through the social media is night and day difference to the someone that I've got to know who's just a very very um, kind and um, respectful respectful young man so 
yeah, that's been awesome. Yeah, all right, I got mine now. So I was thinking, <laughs> to, to be fair, when I went in with Dan, I thought, I think I thought of it, oh, yeah, training's going to be like easy, you know, not totally easy, but I think I thought, oh, it's not going to be as, as hard. I'm going to be like kind of smooth sailing and, and that's, I'm just going to be, you know, awesome all the time, never having to dig deep. And like that's, it's, Dan's as, as hard as they get too. I mean, <laughs> the training is, is freaking hard. <laughs> hey, yeah. Hey, Sam. Just to circle back, you know that donut that you had at that service station? Yeah. How big are we talking? Like, do you have a photo of yourself with it? I think you do, actually. Well, I do. I sent I sent Dan a donut, but this actually reminds me of a whole nother story for you, for you, Jack, because I spent I spent three months there in Noosa one year. Um, and you know, they've got the famous bakery that that serves that donut if you eat the whole thing. Oh, I've been there many times, Sam. Wait, what what donut yeah, is what's this? What's the name of it again? Uh, where is this? In Tucson? No, no. This is this wasn't when I was in Noosa back in twenty. Oh yeah, okay. What it starts with a K, I think. But anyways, it's this one kilogram donut filled with cream, and and if you eat the whole thing, it's free. And so like, I was out there in twenty seventeen riding my bike, and uh, I actually Kenilworth, I think that's what it's called, Kenilworth Bakery. And I walk in, and I see they've got all these plates up, and and you know, I'm so poor at the time. I'm like, no way can I afford a $20 donut if I don't eat the whole thing. So like, <laughs> I pounded the whole donut. And this donut, I mean, I can't even tell you how big it is. It's one kilo. It's Kenilworth Bakery. And the donut, it's like these glazed donuts and they're one kilo. Exactly. So I ate the whole thing 22 minutes flat, get back on my bike. I mean, I, I had like basically diabetes for the rest of the day after eating it because my eye was like twitching but i rode like the whole rest of the day did like this 20 kilometer runoff didn't need a single other calorie the whole rest of the day but uh no anyways i digress the, the donut i had at the shop was just like uh i mean it would be like a, a big just a normal sized big donut but nothing like nothing outrageous i just have to add so you now imagine this sam is that so you did that one kilogram donut and then you started riding your bike and running which is the very best possible thing you can do for your blood sugar, right? And you imagine anyone else who eats that donut, who eats that whole donut and then sits on their ass and does nothing. Imagine, imagine how that feels. Jeez. I would back myself to, I mean, I, I may not eat that many carbs, but I would back myself to smash a one kilogram donut. I reckon I could do it. They're good donuts too. They're like picture perfect. Like they look like big Simpsons donuts. Oh, really? I reckon I, I, next time I go to Noosa, I'm going to back myself. Yeah, they have. Did you go the one? Did you go the traditional one, Sam, like the strawberry sprinkled, or did you do the one with the one they do with cream in it? It's like it's like got. Um... Yeah, yeah, I did the cream, which was like the cream was the hardest part. I mean, I'm telling you, it's like it's like a liter of cream practically that you have to like put down put down the gullet. Yeah, it's oh, like one of those ones, Dan, where it's like it's like a. Um, a big long sort of like um roll one it's not a circle donut it's like it's you know like a um like what a barn me like um roll would look like but it's like cinnamon donut and it's got like cream like whipped cream all through the middle and then like some jam on it it's massive though it's like seriously it's like as long as like i want to say like a 1.5 liter water bottle and probably just about as wide you know, if, if I did it, I would do it how Sam did it. That's easy. He's like, do it like two hours on the two hour ride, smash the donut another two hours, and then then you, then you'll run off. 
Yeah, and then then you'd be that that would be the way to do it. Otherwise, our runoff in Noosa National Park. That's exactly what I did, which is like one of the best places to run ever, as you guys probably both know. Where it's actually where I proposed to my wife, funnily enough. No way, out of really out of out of the point there, out of hell's. Out of the point. Well, actually, I mean, this is this is a bit of a story. So so she was paddleboarding, and I was swimming next to her, and I had the ring in my in my budgie smugglers. And I kind of, <laughs> and I and I and I dived down to the bottom, and I said, "Oh, I wonder if there's any pearls in the ocean." So I dived down to the bottom, got the budgie, got the ring out of the budgie smugglers, and then <laughs> popped back up, and there you go. And funnily enough, I won a, an award for New Zealand's most romantic proposal. So I'm not just not just a scientist; I'm also a romantic. What can I say? <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised there was. Uh, I'm surprised there was room in the budgie smugglers. <laughs> Well, I guess that's uh, that's a pretty good good spot to wrap up there. Um, picturing Dan's penis in a pair of budgie smugglers. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, at least we haven't talked about. Um, I mean, I was listening to Tim Reed's new podcast of the day, and I was um, absolutely in hysterics when he was talking about um, boners and, and overtraining. You should, that's that was that was quite something. If you go back and listen, I think it's episode 13 or it's around there, like episode 10 to 13 of how they train that like that whole thing started with Steve McKenna came on the podcast and he kept like, we were talking about this principle of training to like, how do you know if you're overtrained? And it's, if you can't get a boner, then you're training too hard. And so that's where that comes from because Reedy gave that bit of advice to Steve McKenna and then Steve came on the podcast and talked about it. And now that's become a bit of a thing. Well, 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 it's quite, apparently it's quite true because, um, my good mate Brad Beer, who he has, you know, the from Pogo Physio has a physical performance po- podcast. Um, he was saying that he had an expert on who was like specializes in bone stress injuries and in, in males, and you know he reckons that's linked as well. So he always says to me, he says a, a boner a day keeps the bone stress injuries away. So there you so go. There go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's a that's a little a little um, a little phrase for you. So it's true. How do you check in with that as a coach? Like, how do you how do you ask Sam yeah. about that? <laughs> yeah, we're not checking in on that one. Yeah. Just photo proof every day, please, Sam. <laughs> I, I would just let him know. I'd say, hey, Dan, I'm feeling a bit tired. You know, that's like code word. I'm feeling a little. When I say I'm feeling tired, that's like mostly what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I don't need to ask. When you tell him you're up and about, you know what that means, too. Yeah. All right, boys. Good to chat to both of you. Like I said at the start of the show, just just good to catch up with you boys as mates these days. So really appreciate you coming on and and uh, giving me the honour of being the the platform or the podcast that you boys use to come and, and do your first real deep dive into this. So yeah, uh, appreciate that. Great to catch up as always. Can't wait to check in throughout the, the year and, and chat to both of you more and get updates on how it's all going. And um, like we've already mentioned a few times, um, jump over to Sam's YouTube channel. He's posting all the time there this year. It's great content. It's sort of like, I guess it's similar to what Lionel Sanders does on his YouTube. And I think Sam's probably the guy doing it um, next best. So head over there this year and, and, and check out his YouTube page and, 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 you know, track these updates. I'm sure you'll be talking about Dan over there a lot and, and the training you're doing, Sam. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And then make sure you know that you share this with a friend because we want to be over 50,000 downloads in the first week. That's our goal. Exactly. We've talked about this because <laughs> in Sam's last podcast, um, we did, we talked about at the end of the podcast, like, is he going to have a new coach next year? This was before we knew about Sam working with Dan Plews. 
Um, and we talked about the, the idea of like, well, maybe you go and work with Olav Alexander Boo. And then it got sort of me and Dan talking about how uh, Olav Alexander Boo's podcast that I did with him is my most downloaded. Um, and in the first week, it did 50,000 downloads. Uh, it did 48,000 downloads, which is the most I've ever done in the first week. And so we sort of amongst us three said, let's just, let's see if we can beat that. So yeah, if, you, if you've listened to this and you've, and you've loved it, we want to get this episode to 50,000 downloads in the first week. So share it with a friend, share it on your Instagram stories, comment on the on the post we do about it. Um, spread the love, we'd love that. Yeah, spread the love, that's the way. Awesome, boys. I'll catch up with you soon. Yeah, cheers, Jack. Okay. Thanks, boys. Cheers.